welcoming you to the 2,227th edition of the Enfield Talking Newspaper, dateline 8th of December 2022. It's been a long time, I know, but we're back, and we're back with a Christmas special, especially for you. The readers this week are Roz, Angela, Helen, Chris, Catherine, with Dem on the controls. The editors, the production and distribution team are all the readers that are coming to you this week. Our title music is Country Rock Polka, composed by Pat Prilly, Fernand Bouillon, Harry Brewer, and performed by Jean-Jacques Perry, and is used with his kind permission. The local news stories are not being read today, as it's a festive one. So we've got a collection of cracker jokes, um, interesting facts about various um, elements of Christmas in the modern world, some stories, some poems, and if you're really lucky, a little sing-song at the end. Um, At the moment, we have no special news items, but welcome to the Enfield Talking newspaper, and without further ado... Over to Roz for our first festive piece of fun. Thank you, Catherine. I'm going to start with something very tasty because Christmas is that time of year when we all indulge in traditional and amazing Christmas treats that insist on spoiling our diets and mince pies are no exception. But how is it that this medieval treat has managed to remain on our Christmas shopping list throughout the centuries and have they changed at all over the years? The answer might surprise you. So before you take another bite of that deep-filled Mr Kipling, let's take a deep dive into the history of the humble mince pie. Mince pies have been consumed in Britain for centuries, but definitely not in the same way we actually know them today. First of all, as a mix of mince meat with spices, mince pies were served at times as the main meal. Nowadays, with dried fruit replacing meat, mince pies are served as a sweet treat at Christmas time. In the 12th century, crusades returning from the, from the Middle East first brought these spicy meat pies to Britain's shores. While bringing back spices from the Middle East, the pie was a mix of mincemeat such as lamb, pork, rabbit and mutton with spices as cinnamon, nutmeg and cloves. Crashing into the 13th century, mince pies had become a Christmas indulgent for most Brits. And in the 17th century, this was when big changes to the filling were made, with the inclusion of a dried fruit mix of currants, raisins and various spices like cinnamon and nutmeg. And at this time, original meat-filled pies were still being enjoyed all over the country. But despite many mince pies becoming gradually smaller and more sugary, still managed to enjoy them with spicy meat as a main ingredient – most disappears from the, from the original recipe. Mince pies become known as they are today. Originally British? No, mince pies were not a British creation. Despite being adopted as a British tradition, the idea actually began in the 13th century with European crusades, as I said, being some of them British, returning to their homelands from the Middle East and the fruit-based mince pie we all think of today is considered by many as a British origin. Um, symbolism, yes, cinnamon, cloves and, and nutmeg, these ingredients represent the gifts given, by, given to Jesus by the three eastern kings. Bad luck? Well, English tradition dictates that when making mince pies, it should only be stirred clockwise. Stirring anti-clockwise was thought to bring bad luck and poor, fo- poor fortune for the next 12 months. I say nothing. Good luck? 
eating a mince pie every day for the 12 days of Christmas was seen to be very good luck to ensure happiness, good health in the months ahead. Now, this is really interesting. This one I'm going to end with. The oval shape. In the beginning, mince pies used to be very oval-shaped. Instead of circular, this represented the baby Jesus' manger, and the top represented his swaddling clothes. King John's Christmas by A. A. Milne King John was not a good man. He had his little ways, and sometimes no one spoke to him for days and days and days. And men who came across him when walking in the town gave him a supercilious stare or passed with noses in the air and bad King John stood dumbly there, blushing beneath his crown. King John was not a good man and no good friends had he. He stayed in every afternoon but no one came to tea. And round about December the cards upon his shelf, which wished him lots of Christmas cheer and fortune in the coming year, were never from his near and dear, but only from himself. King John was not a good man, yet had his hopes and fears. They'd given him no present now for years and years and years. But every year at Christmas, while minstrels stood about, collecting tribute from the young for all the songs they might have sung he stole away upstairs and hung a hopeful stocking out king john was not a good man he lived his life aloof alone he thought a message out while climbing up the roof he wrote it down and propped it against the chimney stack to all and sundry near and far F. Christmas in particular, and signed it not Johannes R., but very humbly, Jack. I want some crackers, and I want some candy, and I think a box of chocolates would come in handy. I don't mind oranges, I do like nuts, and I should like a pocket knife that really cuts. And, oh, Father Christmas, if you love me at all, Bring me a big red India rubber ball. King John was not a good man. He wrote this message out and gat him to his room again, descending by the spout. And all that night he lay there and prayed to hopes and fears. I think that's him a-coming now. Anxiety bedewed his brow. He'll bring me one present anyhow, the first I've had for years. Forget about the crackers and forget about the candy and I'm sure a box of chocolates would never come in handy. I don't like oranges and I don't want nuts and I have got a pocket knife that almost cuts. But oh, Father Christmas, if you love me at all, bring me a big red India rubber ball. King John was not a good man. Next morning when the sun rose up to tell a waiting world that Christmas had begun and people seized their stockings and opened them with glee and crackers, toys and games appeared and lips with sticky sweets were smeared King John said grimly as I feared Nothing again for me I did want crackers 
and I did want candy, and I know a box of chocolates would come in handy. I do love oranges, and I did want nuts. I haven't got a pocket knife, not one that cuts. And oh, Father Christmas had loved me at all. He would have brought a big red India rubber ball. King John stood by the window and frowned to see below the happy bands of boys and girls all playing in the snow. And while he stood there watching and envying them all, when, through the window, big and red, there hurtled by his royal head and bounced and fell upon the bed an India rubber ball. And oh, Father Christmas, my blessings on you fall for bringing him a big red India rubber ball. This next one is from Richard Wilson's Scrooge's Guide to Christmas, a survival manual for the festively challenged. And just to let you know what it says on the front cover, it says, drink more for less, food, the joy of giblets, reindeer, cuddle or cull, family, avoiding and offending, and decorations, cheap is cheerful. So this is his idea of what you do for drink when you don't really want anybody to come and drink at your house do not be rash do not go mad there is nothing wrong in these days of breathalyzers alcoholism and health fads in presenting all your guests with a simple fruit cup i usually go for a blend of long life orange juice a dash of ribena and a can of pineapple chunks using every last drop of the liquor For those of you who will insist on spoiling a beautiful cocktail with valuable proof spirit, then may I recommend the addition of small quantities of Listerine or very cheap gin, best purchased in a Calais hypermarket. Alternatively, use up the remains of old bottles of Advocar, Blue Balls, Benelin Super Strength Only or Night Nurse. While most of the elements of a family Christmas are left to the discretion of the host, there is usually ancient legislation that says you must serve mulled wine, even though few people can stomach more than one plastic cupful in the course of a year. Apart from scalding the mouth, it always seems to contain unidentifiable pieces of brown fruit with unpleasant textures. So, whereas throughout this invaluable book I have presented an anti-traditional approach, I cannot be seen to be encouraging lawlessness. Here, then, is a straightforward guide to mulled wine, which, while maintaining the spirit of my thesis, should also keep the authorities off your back. My traditional mulled wine ingredients. One litre of random red wine. I am reluctant to recommend a particular variety, but remember, you are not trying to spoil anyone Go for something with a screw top, or better still, something shipped in polythene with a name that sounds vaguely East European. (laughs) Two litres of water. There is nothing remotely amusing to be said about water, unless you live in the Thames area, in which case, good luck. (laughs) One orange stuck with cloves. I'm assuming this means cloves of garlic. (laughs) Miscellaneous fruit. Oranges, lemons, tomatoes, whatever. Four tablespoons of sugar. 
or equivalent of Hermositas. One small licorice stick, a slightly larger cinnamon stick, and the thumping grate stick you use to play fetch with Fido. <laughs> Two teaspoons of fresh or ground ginger or medium-sized slice of McVitie's ginger cake. A generous splash of your favourite liqueur, creme de menthe, would be ideal. Be aware that Cointreau provides too sympathetic a flavour for your needs. Instructions. Throw all the ingredients into a cauldron. Boil like mad for about an hour, stirring occasionally if you're already in the vicinity. Two. There is no two. See? I said it was simple. (laughs) The Christmas Cracker. The Christmas Cracker was invented by London-based confectioner and baker Tom Smith who set up shop in Goswell Road, Clerkenwell, in the 1840s. Smith initially produced wedding cakes and sweets. On a trip to Paris, he discovered the French bonbon, a sugared almond wrapped in a twist of sugar paper. Bonbons proved a hit at Christmas time, and to encourage year-round sales, Smith added a small love motto inside the wrapper. The inspiration to add the explosive pop was supposedly sparked by the crackling sound of a log fire. Smith patented his first cracker device in 1847 and perfected the mechanism in the 1860s. It used two narrow strips of paper layered together with silver fulminate painted on one side and abrasive surface on the other. When pulled, friction created a small explosion. To stave off competition, the company introduced a range of cracker designs which were marketed as a novelty for use at a wide range of celebrations. Tom's son Walter added the elaborate hats made of fancy paper and sourced novelties and gifts from Europe, America and Japan. The success of the cracker enabled the business to grow and move to larger premises in Finsbury Square, employing 2,000 people by the 1890s, including many female workers. Crackers and paper hats were made by hand, which involved cutting tissue paper with heavy guillotines, pasting, folding and carefully packing for a perfect presentation. The short film from 1910 shows Lionhead brand crackers being manufactured in an Edwardian factory. Novelty crackers followed topical trends. Writers were commissioned to compose snappy lines and the artwork for cracker boxes referenced popular crazes from jazz to Tutankhamun, newfangled motorcars, Charlie Chaplin and the wireless. Crackers were used to celebrate major occasions, including the end of the First World War in 1918 and the 1926 World Tour by Prince Edward, the Prince of Wales. The illustrated Tom Smith catalogues preserved in the V&A's Archive of Art and Design date back to 1877, providing an unusual visual record of social and political events in British history and an insight into the changing styles of commercial design. The brightly covered cracker boxes were collected and traded in their own right. Backer and Company, an 18th century sugar refiner, which had branched into confectionery and novelties following Smith's success, became well known for its cracker labels. A collection of these designs can be viewed by appointment in the Prints and Drawings study room. The Totem Cracker. 
By the 1920s, Tom Smith's crackers were advised, advertised as world-renowned Christmas crackers. No party complete without them. One eye-catching example in our collection is the Totem Cracker, made in 1927 by Tom Smith and Company and originally sold in boxes of 12 in crimson, green and gold. Their name refers to a spectacular dance number, the Totem Tom Tom, from the musical Rosemary, which opened at London's Drury Lane Theatre in 1925 and was a West End hit. Set in the Canadian Rockies, it featured a chorus of over 50 red-skinned totem pole girls clad in colourful outfits and elaborate headdresses resembling carved animal heads. The totem crackers embodied the decadent frivolity of the flapper-era musical, combining orange cellophane over gold foil with a central sticker Depicting the totem pole girl, they came complete with totem pole girl headdresses, musical toys, imitation jewellery and quips and jokes and were sold for 34 shillings. Paper patterns inspired by the dancers' costumes decorate the ends with fringe gold paper and the maker's name finishing off the ensemble. The Second World War caused paper rationing and a restriction on the manufacture of cracker snaps. But the industry recovered in the 50s and 60s. Tom Smith and Co. was making 30,000 crackers a week. Today, Christmas crackers are produced for every pocket, from luxurious to fun-sized. And the Tom Smith brand continues to produce luxury crackers, including special crackers for the royal household, although the designs and contents are a closely guarded secret. At the dawn of the 19th century, Christmas was hardly celebrated, at least not in a way we would recognise today. Many businesses didn't consider it to be a holiday. Gift-giving had traditionally been a New Year activity, but moved as Christmas became more important to the Victorians. By the end of the century, Christmas had become the biggest annual celebration in the British calendar. Victorian advancements in technology, industry and infrastructure, as well as having an impact on society as a whole, made Christmas an occasion that many more British people could enjoy. One of the most significant seasonal traditions to emerge from the Victorian era is the Christmas card. It was Sir Henry Cole, the first director of the V&A, who introduced the idea of the Christmas card in 1843. Cole commissioned the artist J.C. Horsley to design a festive scene for his seasonal greeting cards and had 1,000 printed. Those he didn't use himself were sold to the public. Later in the century, improvements to the printing process made by buying and sending Christmas cards more affordable for everyone. The great mechanisation and widespread industrialization of the country had helped to create a whole new middle class, with a greater disposable income. Increased prosperity across Britain saw a rising market for mass-produced toys, decorations and novelty items such as the Christmas cracker. Inspired by bonbons, French sweets wrapped in paper, he saw during during a trip to Paris, sweet shop owner Tom Smith first invented the crackers in 1840. It wasn't until the 1860s when Smith perfected its explosive bang that the Christmas cracker, as we know it today, became a popular seasonal staple. Along with the joke, gifts inside could range from small trinkets such as whistles and miniature dolls to more substantial items like jewellery. 
The Victorian age placed great importance on family, so it follows that Christmas was celebrated at home. For many, the new railway networks made this possible. Those who had left the countryside to seek work in cities could return home for Christmas and spend their precious days off with loved ones. Family life was epitomised by the popular Queen Victoria herself, her husband and their nine children. One of the most important Christmas traditions, the decorated Christmas tree, was a custom introduced to Britain by Prince Albert. The idea of an indoor Christmas tree originated in Germany, where Albert was born. In 1848, the Illustrated London News published a drawing of the royal family celebrated around a Christmas tree bedecked with ornaments. The popularity of the decorated Christmas tree grew quicklers and reflective materials that would shimmer and glitter in the candlelight. Mechanisation and the improved printing process meant decorations could be mass-produced and advertised to eager buyers. The first advertisements for Christmas tree ornaments appeared in 1853. Victorians would often combine their sparkly bought decorations with candles and homemade edible treats tied to the branches with ribbon. Today, candles on the Christmas tree have been replaced by fairy lights. Printed cards may be substituted with e-cards and we're more likely to find plastic knickknacks in our crackers than jewellery. Our Christmas customs continue to be shaped by technological advancements and modern changes in society. How many of us do our Christmas shopping online? I know I do. Me too. Mm -hmm. How many of us do our Christmas shopping online, Skype our families across the world on Christmas Day? But many of these new traditions are still rooted in the spirit of the Victorian Christmas, an integral part of the Christmas that we love and celebrate today. Having heard about all the Christmas crackers going around here, here are some jokes to go inside. Are you ready, folks? Yeah. Okie dokie. What's a parent's favourite Christmas carol? Don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Silent night, you're right. Oh. <laughs> Big groan. Hi, I'm Alison, and I'm afraid I arrived rather late mm -hmm. to the party, but I'm ready to join in now. So... When is a Christmas dinner bad for your health? Mm. No, no. no. When you're the turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, it's Chris again talking about turkeys. Why was the turkey in the pop group? Because he was the only one with drumsticks. <laughs> now this one's certainly true in my house. What's the most popular Christmas wine? Mm, not bad. I don't like sprouts. <laughs> oh. Yeah, all right. I like them too. Hi, this is Helen here. Why? Why couldn't the skeleton go to the Christmas party? Oh, he had nobody to go with. Okay, 
can only apologize to my colleagues here. So, uh, hi, it's Angela. So, here's my Christmas cracker joke. How did Mary and Joseph know Jesus' weight when he was born? They had a way in the manger. Hey. <laughs> we have another go round. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What do you call a penguin in the Sahara Desert? Lost. Cold. <laughs> Hot. No, Lost. <laughs> okay, we're back to the turkeys now. <laughs> Why did the turkey cross the road? Board. To say hello to the chicken? No, because he wasn't chicken. Oh. Oh. I knew it had to be a chicken. The <laughs> chicken in there. Okay, what do they sing at a snowman's birthday? There's no business night. Close. Freeze a jolly good fellow. That's actually so bad. I've got to remember some of these. <laughs> It's all in the telling of it. Uh, why did nobody bid for Rudolph and Blitzen on eBay? Uh, because they were too dear. Oh, oh. that honestly, I'm, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, How does snowman get around? Uh, they ride an icicle. Oh, oh, good Lord. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> what athlete is warmest in winter? A long jumper. Oh. Oh, I, I need one it. of those. I definitely need one of those. Yeah, I like the applause, by the way. <laughs> I'm back on the food here. A little bit of facts and tasty morsels about the Stollen. Now, the Dresden Stollen, or German Christmas bread, goes by many different names. Stollen, Dresden Stollen, Strudel, Stresel, Struttenbott, or Christ Stollen. Now, this traditional German Christmas cake is a colourful collection of nuts, raisins, currants, candied orange, lemon peel, plus traditional spices of Christmas, such as cinnamon, nutmeg, cardamom, mace or cloves, brandy or rum, and lots of butter. Now, legend says that the Stollen was pronounced stolen. In its typical shape with white layer of icing or powdered sugar, it symbolises swaddled Christ child. And Stollen is thought to have been originated in Dresden, Germany in the 1400s. However, at that time, the Catholic Church, as part of the fasting rules in preparation for Christmas, forbade the use of buttermilk during Advent. Thus, the Stollen of the Mid Middle Ages was a somewhat tasteless pastry. And in 1650... Ernst of Saxony and his brother Albrecht appealed to the Pope to rescind the so-called butter ban in effect at that time. The Holy Father eventually gave in to their entreaties and declared in what came to be known as the Buffer Brief that milk and butter could indeed be used in baking the Stollen. This could be done with a clear conscience with God's blessing. After making the appropriate penance, this historic decision became a time-honoured tradition where stolen bakers delivered one or two Christmas stolen each year with a total weight of £36 to the King of Saxony for the holy celebration. Eight master bakers and eight apprentices carried it in a procession to the castle and in 1730, the August the Strong, 
Elector Lord of Saxony, commanded the Bakery Guild of Dresden to make a huge stolen with a weight of 1.8 tonnes to commemorate that event. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if only, yeah. A similar stolen is baked every year at the annual Dresden Solon Festival on Saturday before the second advent. I'm going to read to you an extract from a novel by J.B. Priestley called Angel Pavement. Although it was written in the 1930s, I think it has an awful lot of similarities with our belief of Christmas nowadays. Miss Matfield, sitting with cold feet and a novel she disliked in the 13 bus, realised with a shock that it was nearly Christmas. The shops she passed every day in the bus along Regent Street and Oxford Street had been celebrating Christmas for some time, and it was weeks since they had first broken out into their annual crimson rash of hollyberries, robins and Father Christmases. The shops, followed by the illustrated papers, began it so early with their full chorus of advertising managers and window dresses shouting, Christmas is here! At a time when it obviously wasn't. <laughs> that when it did actually come creeping up, you'd forgotten about it. Miss Matfield told herself this and then remembered that every year her mother used to cry, What? Nearly Christmas already? I never thought it was so near. It's taken me completely by surprise this year. Yes, every year she used to say that. And year after year, Miss Matfield would tease her about it. And now, Miss Matfield told herself she had begun to say it, just as if she was on the point of becoming forgetful and absurd and middle-aged. The festive season, oh, help! It was all an elaborate stunt to persuade everybody to spend money buying useless, useless things for everybody else. Christmas. It was, on the whole, she decided, revolting. You gave people a lot of silly things and diaries and calendars and rot, or useful things that were not right. Gloves of the wrong size and stockings of the wrong shade. Oh, and she would have to be thinking out her presence now, and she was terribly hard up. And, and they, in their turn, gave you silly things, and the useful things that were not right. And, and what was so terribly depressing and revolting about it all was that it was possible to imagine a really good Christmas, you know, the adult equivalent of the enchanting Christmases of childhood, the sort of Christmas that people always thought they were going to have and never did have. Miss Matfield took out from its secret recess that dream of a Christmas. She was in an old house in the country somewhere with firelight and candlelight reflected in the polished wood surfaces. By her side, adoring her, was a vague figure a husband, tall, strong, not handsome perhaps, but distinguished, 
two or three children, vague too, nothing but laughter and a gleam of curls, friends arriving, delightful people. Hello, they cried. Oh, what a marvellous place you've got here. I say, Lillian. Some smiling servants, um, logs on the fires, snow falling outside, old silver shining on the mahogany dining table. And, darling, you look wonderful in that thing, said the masculine shadow in his deep, thrilling voice. Hello, it's Chris again. Another poem. This one is called Christmas and it's by John Betchman. The bells of waiting Advent ring. The tortoise stove is lit again and lamp oil light across the night has caught the streaks of winter rain in many a stained glass window sheen from crimson lake to hooker's green. The holly in the windy hedge and round the manor house the yew will soon be stripped to deck the ledge, the altar, font and arch and pew, so that the villagers can say, the church looks nice on Christmas Day. Provincial public houses blaze, corporation tramcars clang, on lighted tenements I gaze, where paper decorations hang, and bunting in the red town hall says, Merry Christmas to you all! And London shops on Christmas Eve are strung with silver bells and flowers, as hurrying clerks the city leave to pigeon-haunted classic towers, and marbled clouds go scudding by the many-steepled London sky. And girls in slacks remember Dad, and oafish louts remember Mum, and sleepless children's hearts are glad, and Christmas morning bells say come, even to shining ones who dwell safe in the Dorchester Hotel. And is it true? And is it true this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained-glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea, became a child on earth for me? And is it true? For if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and inexpensive scent, and hideous tie so kindly meant, no love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare. The God was made in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. This next one I came across many years ago and have used at school at Christmas time, but I haven't actually used it for about a couple of decades now, so it's a good time for me to reread this. It's based on a real letter from a young girl 
1897 to um, the New York Sun, the newspaper there, and the editor's response is the thing that's quite interesting here. Um, forgive me, but I intend to do the accent. It's not going to be a great one, but, you know, you'll get the idea. <laughs> so it says, Editor Francis P. Church's letter to Virginia O'Hanlon is one of the most touching written demonstrations of the importance in believing in what cannot be seen, touched or proven. The letter originally appeared in the September 21st, 1897 edition of the New York Sun, nearly a century later, and then beyond that now, um, it remains a classic. Dear editor, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia O'Hanlon, 115 West 95th Street. Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant in his intellect as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole of truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist, and you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would the world be if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginians. There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus? You might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus. But even if they did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not, but that's no proof that they are not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders that are unseen and unseeable in the world. You tear apart a baby's rattle and see what makes a noise inside, but there's a veil covering the unseen world which not the strongest man nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view and picture the supernatural beauty and glory beyond. Is it all real? Ah, Virginia, in all this world there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus? Thank God he lives, and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, 
10 times 10,000 years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of children. So this is another article from Richard Wilson's Scrooge Guide to Christmas. And um, it's an article written by George Bernard Shaw, who clearly was a man after my own heart. It's entitled, An Atrocious Institution. <laughs> like all intelligent people, I greatly dislike Christmas. It revolts me to see a whole nation refrain from music for weeks together in order that every man may rifle his neighbour's pockets under cover of a ghastly present pretense of festivity. It is really an atrocious institution this Christmas. We must be gluttonous because it is Christmas. We must be drunken because it is Christmas. We must be sin insincerely generous. We must buy things that nobody wants and give them to people we don't like. We must go to absurd entertainments that make even our little children satirical. We must writhe under venal officiousness from legions of freebooters, all because... It is Christmas. That is, because the mass of the population, including the all-powerful middle-class tradesmen, depends on a week of licence and brigandage, waste and intemperance, to clear off its outstanding liabilities at the end of the year. As for me, I shall fly from it all tomorrow or next day to some remote spot, miles from a shop, where nothing worse can befall me than a serenade from a few pheasants or some equally harmless survival of medieval mummery. Shyly proffered, not advertised, moderate in its expectations, and soon over. In town there is, for the moment, nothing for me or any honest man to do. Well, that was very entertaining. Uh, George Bernard Shaw said something about medieval mummery. I have no clue what that is. But to uh, serenade you now, it's me, Angela, and I'm just going to uh, sing a few verses of <coughs> Good, King, Good King Wenceslas Lass. Is that how you say it? Okay. Good King Wenceslas last looked out on the feast of Stephen when the snow lay round about, smooth and crisp and even. Lightly shone the moon that light, though the frost was cruel, where a poor man came in sight, gathering winter fuel. Hither, page, and stand by me, if thou know it's telling. Yonder peasant, who is he? Where the throat was dwelling. Uh, sorry, what? <laughs> They've got no manners, this lot. So he lived in goodly heads underneath the mountain, right against the forest fence by St. Agnes' fountain. Bring me flesh and bring me wine, bring me pine logs hither. Thou and I will see him dine when we bear him hither. Page and monarch, forth they went, forth they went together. Through the wood, rude winds, wild lament, and the bitter weather. Which we can all relate to because it's very cold in Enfield this evening. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
We have rifled into the last box of Christmas crackers, folks. Here we go. The jokes are on us. <laughs> How did the ornament get addicted to Christmas? Oh, I don't know. Oh, he was hooked on trees all his life. Oh, <laughs> that was beyond dry. That was so dehydrated. We might need to throw some water on that. Good Lord. I'm not sure about this one. It took me a while to actually find the humour in this one. But anyway, why was the snowman looking through the carrots? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite concerning. Yeah. No idea. He was picking his nose. <laughs> 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 no, I don't even no. know. That. That's no, just no, put me off my like dinner. No. <laughs> no. Well, from low class to just a very, very bad job. Excuse us. What does Santa do when his elves misbehave? Oh, I feel like I know Uh, this. He gives them the sack. Ho, ho, ho. That's cruelty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't have a trade union. (laughs) What do you get if you eat Christmas decorations? Oh, Oh, I know that. Yes, yes, yes. All the old ones are, aren't they? And what do you get when you cross a snowman with a vampire? No idea. Frostbite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite a good one, actually. Okay. What kind of motorcycle does Santa ride? A Holly Davidson. Oh, yeah. Terrible. Shocking. Well, okay, folks, for for some of you not too soon, (laughs) we have reached the end of our festive Christmas 2022 edition. Um, Thank you for listening, um, and so glad to be back with you again. So, from the team of Alison, Roz, Angela, Helen, Chris, Catherine, and Dem on the Controls, it's... Bye-bye. Happy New Year. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, Christmas, everyone. We're so happy to be able to do this for you. We've waited a long time and you have have too, so it's just lovely. We hope to be back with you in the new year and then for the rest of the year, continuing on with our usual local news programmes. And we've come to the end of our recording, so once you're finished, please remember to turn over the address label in your postal packet put the memory stick into the packet in a closed position and return it to us as soon as possible in readiness for the next edition. Don't forget, you can call Diane de Jersey regarding any help you may require in connection with the Enfield Talking newspaper on 0208 805 6578. That's 0208 805 6578. Seven eight.